Welcome to Opt In with April Jasper, relevant conversations about topics important to eye care providers today. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We appreciate being a part of your life and being invited into your day. It is such a joy to be able to help our colleagues to bring value to their patients and to help you strengthen and grow your business. Join us at optometricmanagementeducation.com where you can learn more about all of the other services we provide. We have a subscription service that you can be a part of where you can learn and teach your team from the courses that we've recorded on all of the topics that are relevant to your success. We also have consulting services. And right now, if you give us a call, schedule a call with me, I'll be happy to talk to you about what we can do to help you grow your business one-on-one. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. April Jasper. I'm excited to be here with you. And I am here at Optometric Management Symposium in Orlando. I can tell you one of the highlights of this event for me has been what you guys just presented for us. And you're going to do another presentation here in a few minutes. This is Dr. Liffert and Dr. Fechner. Now, I don't have your uh, bios with me, so I'm just going to let you guys introduce yourselves. So I'll start with Dr. Fechner. Sure. Thanks. I'm Rob Fechner. I'm a glaucoma specialist. I'm also an academician. I'm chair of ophthalmology at SUNY Upstate at uh, Syracuse, New York. But my day-to-day is I take care of glaucoma patients. Austin, how about you? And we're glad you do, Rob, for sure, helping <laughs> out like that. Austin Liffert uh, from Center for Sight in Carmel, Indiana. I'm with a uh, comprehensive ophthalmologist, private practice, large group, busy medical practice setting. So. so this is actually a really unique opportunity for all of us that are in the audience listening to you guys because we get to hear how you both take care of your glaucoma patients, and we get to see how it works together as an optometrist and an ophthalmologist. So thank you, first of all, for being here. Thank you for being on this as well. It's been great. I'm really glad fun. to be here. So the first thing I want to start with is why does the stage of glaucoma matter? Who wants to take that one? <laughs> I guess I'll take that one. So uh, I, I get to th- keep doing this. There we go. <laughs> I'm looking at you first. I love <laughs> it. For a lecture there. <laughs> So I think the stage matters as far as diagnosis and as far as treatment. Okay. So if we, um, no one ends up with end-stage glaucoma overnight. Something's happened along the way. So yeah. it's either our evaluation or our testing that we need to do in that area. Some testing is better at certain stages and some treatment is better. Uh, treatment, uh, I, goal eye pressure readings. Right. Our target pressure are different depending on the stage of the disease. Anything else about that, Rob? Well, I always think of glaucoma as a continuum going all the way across to end stage. But the beginning of that continuum is normal. Right. So as people are moving through that journey, the earlier we can capture them, the better our chances of not letting them keep progressing. Right. You both made a point of that in the conversation we were having in the classroom, and that was that everyone's a suspect until they're not. Is that kind of what you were saying, or did I mishear that? I think you're right. Guilty until until proven innocent. Yeah. But how long does that take? So might take Uh, a a lifetime. (laughs) Right. I think uh, to that point that Rob's world is more advanced glaucoma, and I think as providers, ODs, yep. really we see a lot more glaucoma suspects, early glaucoma, and that's our area we can really um, make a difference in. The, great, the greatest ahead. entry uh, yeah. for glaucoma patients will be through the uh, optometric office. Yeah. So these topics we're talking about of early detection, appropriate initial treatment, uh, to me, are what are going to change the course of people's life with glaucoma. I've seen Perfect. it said that one of the most common uh, reasons for malpractice in any eye care provider's office is failure to diagnose 
the disease glaucoma. So it kind of goes back to what you're saying. How do we how do we make change there? How do we affect change in the problem of not even diagnosing them when we should? That's kind of what you talked about. Yeah, I, I, I see the ones who are kind of late. But my first thought about that really refers to what we're joking about. Everybody's a glaucoma suspect, yeah. but everybody's a glaucoma suspect. So right. when you're doing an eye examination, you just have to maintain that curiosity. Do the nerves look okay? What do I think of the pressure in the context of corneal thickness? What's the family history? And look for risk factors. So if we change our philosophy from I'm going to find glaucoma to I'm going to assess your risk, then we're going to make the diagnosis earlier and more accurately. Change I love paradigm. that. I think for glaucoma, for that, to catch it earlier, unfortunately what happens is we over-rely on our, our, our eye pressure readings. So if it's normal, we might not look at the nerve systematically. So we over-rely on the eye pressure readings, and we under-evaluate the optic nerve. So if we can evaluate the optic nerve more systematically, more carefully with every patient, we're more likely to pick up these early glaucoma patients. Start treatment earlier, better prognosis. That was actually a question I was going to ask you, and I, it, it was, of course, I know IOP matters, but let me just throw the question out, and I'll let you guys answer it the way you did here in the class, and that is, does IOP matter? We are proud to be sponsored by MacuHealth, a triple carotenoid formula that is the only one with mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin. David and I have been using MacuHealth in our practice for several years. We love it because it's patented with micromycel technology. It's clinically proven to restore macular pigment and supported by level one scientific evidence. So we have confidence that it works. Well, take, to you on that yeah, one. yeah, take it wherever yeah. you want. So of course IOP matters in the context of glaucoma, but the, but the example I gave inside was you have a patient come in and the pressures are... 22 and 23, are you going to treat? And I think the answer is, well, I don't know enough. And if we flip that upside down, we say a patient comes in and the optic nerve is notched, there's a disc hemorrhage, the OCT shows an NFL bundle defect and the visual field corresponds with that, are you going to treat? And of course we are. I didn't right. tell you what the pressure was. <laughs> so the pressure is the Brilliant. measurement of effective of treatment and it's a risk factor. I think it matters. So I'll say yes and no. <laughs> it matters if we put it in the context of the optic nerve. So we look at the optic nerve and see there's thinning, nerve run around loss. We'd want to start treatment for that. But I think we look at the nerve differently depending on the pressure readings. So if we look at the pressure first and the pressure are 15, we might not pick up early notching, early thinning. However, right. it's 23 where you might be more careful, have a systematic evaluation. So any test we do, especially high pressure readings, should be put in the context of the optic nerve. Right. So riffing off that one. If you approach every patient and just imagine their pressure is 23 and look at the nerve as yep. though it's 23, then you won't miss those. Yep. We shouldn't be reassured by a statistically normal pressure. Well and done. Enough of that one. Go. Am I go one more time? <laughs> yes. So what if we didn't have intraocular pressures? What would, we do, what would we do differently? Would we examine the nerve differently, more carefully, more systematically? So I think that's important to have a more qualitative evaluation beyond CD ratios. I don't think at one point, and then when I brought it up, did we mention cup to dish ratio? Wow. For a whole yeah. we, we use it as a shorthand, yeah. but um, you know, my example is a donut, and the, the cup is the hole in the middle of the donut. I don't want to eat the hole. I want to eat the donut, so I'm really yeah. paying attention to the neuroretinal oh, rim. Great and tasty analogy. There you go. <laughs> so we talked about early diagnosis. Now let's talk about early treatment. So now a patient comes in, and I think an example you used, well, you used a patient that had a glaucoma diagnosis in one eye, and not the other, so that was one example. And then 
let's use also an example of somebody who needs treatment in both eyes. What is the first treatment step that you take? Austin. I see you look at me, Rob. I know. Well, I don't, I don't <laughs> get to see these early That's ones true. so often. Okay. So I'd say there's, there's a difference between first-line therapy and okay. first-choice therapy. Okay. First-line might be a prostaglandin. That's more common. It's easy to use once a day, very effective, and many times affordable. First-choice therapy might be different. It might be SLT. And I'm from the re recent evidence, the light study, and other um, articles that come out, I'm leaning more heavily towards SLT as an option. I'll present it to the patient, but based on these findings, we need to lower the pressure more. Here are different ways we can do it. And then at the same time, thinking, well, what would I prefer? Would I want to take an eye drop every day yep. for the rest of my life? Yep. I told you in the lecture that I'm personalizing these patients more and more because I'm getting older right. more and more. And so if we can lower the pressures in our office, uh, that'd be better. If we could go for um, adherence, independent ILP reduction. And whose choice? Your choice or the patient's choice? Uh, I'd say both. So really, I think in these settings, to have the patient on board, they really have to have the last word. You asked the question about unilateral treatment. Oh, yes. And with years and years of use of prostaglandin, I think we finally come to appreciate there are orbital fat changes, others, and if somebody's on long-time unilateral treatment, it will have a cosmetic impact. So I'm very thoughtful about yes. unilateral treatment with prostaglandins. As far as whose choice, I can say it's really up to the patient, but you know what? They turn to us for yes. guidance, and well, I try to steer them toward a good choice. A good choice could be starting with medication or starting with laser. And I think with that, is a treatment worse than the disease? So finding out the right treatment so we still have a good effective control of the disease. So when is SLT first? I'm going to turn the question around because you talked about laser versus drops. So when do you think that laser, and I know you already said, Dr. Fechner, you don't see those early patients much, but... Well, and I'm pretty sure Austin's not lasering them. So what would you say but, is the is the so, time so there, to there's, cer there's certain situations where to me it's obvious laser should be first. Uh, the pseudo exfoliators, the pigment dispersers, tend to respond really well okay. to laser. The people who are um, averse to medications, or perhaps the patient who has arthritis or some other dexterity challenge, is a great candidate for laser first. And as Austin referred to the light study, at least over the duration of that study, yeah. initial therapy with prostaglandin or initial therapy with laser, laser did just fine. So we've changed our thinking about that one. If, if you're talking about starting therapy, laser should enter the discussion. And if you're thinking about a second eye drop bottle, laser definitely should enter the discussion. Okay. Anything to add to that? I'd say ditto. Okay. Ditto for that one. Yeah, I right. think especially another group is younger patients who might have a chance of lifelong glaucoma therapy. If we can have some bridge therapy, SLT, right. every three to five years if needed. Other patients, those the ones who you find that their one-month prescription is lasting three months, it's because they're not adherent with their exactly. medications. So if you get the feeling there's low adherence, let's take that out of the factor, have a little more control, do SLT. You know, I, I think that's a question that I don't know if it's going to come up more as we go through this this afternoon, but let's talk about it here. Let's talk about those patients that are not compliant what's going on with them and what have you found because you could be getting them dr fechner because they didn't listen to dr mm -hmm. lifford yeah. i mean sometimes that happens so now you have a patient that's progressed we don't think they're being compliant first of all how do you know that's the problem to your point austin and then what do you do about it well quite quite dismally we we don't know if yes. they're compliant or yep. not for a while there was a dosing aid that would record when the patients use the drops, I distributed them. I had one very intelligent 
patient whose pressure was fine at every office visit. And when we looked at his use, that's because he put in about 12 drops in the two days before his visit. Oh, my and goodness. And in between, he was not using them. So That's very common. We're, we're, we're yeah. really poor at being able to assess compliance. I... I, I kind of despair on that one. We try to do the education. I use the term adherence because that's stickiness. Will yes. the patients stick with the therapy? I think the education and understanding of it helps. And in my electronic health record, I can see how many refills they still have. And Ooh. if they've come back and there's still five refills, we have the talk. That's good. Any other ideas, Austin? I, I think uh, if we can have a layered approach, asking our staff members to ask their adherence level, how do they take their eye drops, what troubles do they have? Many times the patients might be a little more honest or forthright to the staff than they are to the provider for whatever reason. So I think that's helpful. And then we ask them as well. Recognize the fact it's hard to put them in. Yep. How often do you think you do it? How can we help with that? Uh, makes a big difference. You brought a great point about these compliance or adherence right before an office visit and right afterwards. And what happens is, and unfortunately, many times they'll take the pressure drops a few days before. Pressures are really good. And at that time, at that moment, the tests are stable. So we say to the patient, you're doing great. Keep doing what you're doing. Right. So we're kind of And what they're doing is not using and their drugs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, okay, I'm good now. So <laughs> yep. we're reinforcing that negative behavior, but that's all we know. And studies have shown that as providers, we do a poor job with detecting here. Yeah, I heard one of my colleagues say, nobody's non-compliant with SLT as long <laughs> as they show up for yep, their SLT. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, we're dealing with humans. It's human nature. It is. I'm sure that I know we I should be doing a lot of things. <laughs> Maybe we would even admit that there's been a time in our life where we didn't follow exactly the instructions yeah. given. I don't know. I, I might admit to it. <laughs> All right. So here's another one. I heard you and saw you guys present a few tools, calculators that you use in clinic, or at least you used them for the presentation. So let's be real. Are there any tools, calculators, anything you use that kind of helps you in decision making of any kind in the world of glaucoma? Thank you to NeuroLens for being a sponsor of our podcast. We have really appreciated having the option of NeuroLens for our patients in our practice. At least two-thirds of people experience the symptoms of eye misalignment, and that number grows as we continue to shift to remote work and learning. The symptoms of headaches, eye strain, dry eyes, and neck pain, eye fatigue, even motion sickness can be extreme. Even small misalignments can cause painful symptoms and even small prism correction can provide dramatic relief. Let me speak to this because I participated in the OAT study and it generated a risk calculator. I do not sit down and do a risk calculation on every ocular hypertensive. I see I've, I've internalized that. But right. doing the risk calculations helped sensitize me for those risk factors I need to look at. We ah. illustrated central corneal thickness. That's a real driver for the risk of converting to glaucoma. I also find it's a useful educational tool okay. with a patient who's skeptical of treatment and what I'm talking about. I say, well, let's look at your numbers. Yeah. Okay. And I'll put it up in front of them and say, population has a 5 to 10% risk. You're at a 30% risk. Would you like to reduce your risk? And if wow. we shift the discussion from treating disease to reducing risk, we can link it to things like control your blood pressure, control your cholesterol, control your blood sugar, to reduce risk, we're going to do the same thing to reduce your risk of losing vision. Wow, that's good. It's really good. I think uh, patients are familiar with risk reduction, the idea of like cardiovascular disease with certain risk factors, you can track your risk for that. Yep. And similar with ocular hypertension, you know, we don't have a crystal ball for glaucoma. We wish we did. We can uh, see on the GPA, the past, the present, and we kind of predict the future. But there's so many variables with that. And in my mind, having an objective, 
science-based, evidence-based model to yeah. make decisions. I think it's helpful. And for some patients who are considering treatment or the risk factor, I'll do it right there in the exam room with them. We'll punch in their visual field, their age, their wow. point of pachymetry. We'll print it off and say, well, here's where you're at. What do you feel comfortable with? And then we'll put that in the chart and I'll give them a copy. And then this may, this will change as you get older yep. or the pressures change or the visual field changes. So I like to give them a hand, hard copy, let, take it home and I put in the chart. Yeah. Having said that, it doesn't include everything like family history, right. anxiety or apprehension. So those are things we don't consider with it, but it gives us context, uh, a sort of evidence-based crystal ball. Austin, I, I find that takes me time it does. in the office, and, and yep. time is precious. My cherished belief is the time I'm spending up front is going to pay off dividends over the long run in the patient's yeah, care. Yeah, these are investments in their adherence, yep. in their care, their trust, how well they're going to keep their appointments. And so it's a small, it, relatively speaking, small investment in time, but a big return. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're seeing all these patients. You're seeing a lot more of them than the rest of us. And so that's why it's so important for us to hear from you what works. So that for a, a practice that sees maybe two or three of these patients a day, we can learn from you how we can do it better. Good. So you've had time to think about it. I gave you this question a little bit, like two minutes ahead of time. The biggest challenge we face in glaucoma today, who's first? I was just hoping Rob would go first. Then I can uh, say ditto <laughs> afterwards. All right, Rob. Rob, we'll hear from you first. Yeah. Or maybe you should there, have the last word. Yeah, there, no, there's so many ways to go on it. One of the biggest challenges is patients live a long time. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And it is a lifetime of care. We yep. cannot stop the disease. In many cases, we slow it down. So the biggest challenge is for us mm -hmm. to appreciate maybe we need to be more intensive at the start yep. rather than letting patients progress. The worse you are, the greater the likelihood you're going to continue getting worse. Oh, wow. That's... Yeah, and, and we're the ones, like you said, that are seeing them first. So we have to continue yeah. to do a better job. My other answer would have been compliance. Yes, okay. <laughs> wow, I don't know. Those are great, great answers there. I think the biggest challenge today, based on our lecture this morning, what we had to uh, discuss so far, is cup-to-dish ratios. Okay, tell me more. Meaning, cup-to-dish ratios gives us a uh, quantitative value of the optic nerve, but doesn't tell us if it's glaucomatous. And as providers, as ODs, we might look at the CD ratio we may not look at the nerve as well. If we don't look at the nerve as well, we're less likely to diagnose glaucoma and pick it up in the earlier stages yep. until it gets moderate advanced. Then they're in Rob's chair. Right. Treatment. <laughs> so I think cup digital ratios or a qualitative evaluation, what's, that's what we want. That's what we elevate it more than cup digital ratios. We want qualitative evaluations. All right. So the other thing I heard, just a couple more questions. Thank you. You paid again. a lot of attention. I did. <laughs> yeah, I this love is it. Great. Great. You know, I, I, when I bought my practice in 2002, the, the practice was owned by a doctor whose wife is Cuban and half their patients spoke Spanish only. And what I didn't have any idea was going to happen. Thankfully, my residency was a lot of glaucoma anyway. So I was ready, but I hadn't done that in six years. I'd been in a corporate setting. So I got into this practice and I was seeing five glaucoma patients a day from day one. And that's a general practice. That's not a glaucoma practice. So it's not as much as what you guys are doing, but it was a lot for me. Yeah. And so I just became passionate about it. And I still am. And I, I love learning from you. So, yeah, that's the history and why I pay attention. But visual fields, I, I love this. Your, what is your go-to visual field? And uh, 
you, you gave us a little uh, tip in class about what to do with a central field, but I won't tell everybody. I'll let you guys hit that first. So Rob, tell me your best favorite visual field. What is your go-to? And then best uh, tip for those of us that are doing visual fields that might help us. Sure. And a as a researcher, I have stayed on the Humphrey Field Analyzer platform because that's what's been used in a lot of clinical trials. There are other perfectly fine machines. Okay. But I'll speak to that one because that's what I'm using. Uh, my go-to visual field is on the first one, I can almost always throw it away because patients don't do well on the first visual field. It <laughs> doesn't matter. It's the first visual <laughs> field. That's what it looks like. So I, I run a seat of fast on that one. Okay. Uh, once I have somebody who is a reliable field test taker, I'll use the CETA standard. And I try to get at least three visual fields over the first year because once I have yeah. three visual fields in the computer, I can start doing progression analysis. Right. That's so good. So I try to front load those. There is probably a role for the 10-2 visual field or the, the software is not evolved. Patients with glaucoma don't only lose peripheral field. They are losing right. all sorts of sensitivity. And there's some very good work out of Don Hood's lab showing the ganglion cell complex and the central visual field can progress and correlate early in glaucoma. Right. So that's one of those things where I'm paying attention to it. Yes. I don't quite know what to do with it. And we're doing the 24-2s. Okay. Austin. Yeah, I think uh, first point is we probably don't do enough visual fields, unlike Rob, who tries to get them in there more often. We need a baseline to track for progression. The other idea is, uh, I think the World Glaucoma Association has said that 24-2 or 3-2 is uh, standard. That's sufficient. Um, whatever field you do, I'd recommend you just ha keep it the same type so we can get data, long-term right. information there, rather than switching back and forth. We're trying to balance comfort and reliability, sensitivity for the fields. It's not enjoyable for the patient, but we need reliable results. Right. Whatever algorithm we can use that test it accurately and quickly, comfortably, is, is, is would the be one. my preference. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good advice. So final question. Here at the Optometric Management Symposium, you're both also talking about interventional glaucoma and the collaborative and complementary approach. So here's the question. How do you feel it best for optometry and ophthalmology to work together? So I'm, I'm actually going to punt that one again to Austin by saying, what are you looking for from your glaucoma ophthalmology consultant? And you have glaucoma specialists in your practice with you, right? So you are a glaucoma specialist. You have ophthalmologists in your practice yeah. with you? Yeah, he does high-end uh, comprehensive ophthalmology care. We do have another glaucoma specialist who does a surgery. Okay. We're close by, we work with him. And I think um, my recommendation would be sooner rather than later as far as referrals. So if we see a patient and they're progressing and we've done the right tests to find out they're progressing, I'd work with them sooner. The patients appreciate it. The glaucoma specialist appreciates it as well. Um, you know, the patient's always top priority. So do you recommend that because that patient, when they see the glaucoma specialist, this, they will give you a general idea of what they think is going on, and then they'll send them back? Yeah, so I, in the, just to answer that briefly, in the yeah. lecture, I use the word partnering, and that's really what I foresee working with a glaucoma specialist. And we can do a lot of the treatment initially, a lot of the follow-up initially, especially if there's after they've had surgery and stable. We can care for that. Dr. Factor is going to be super busy yes. as the prevalence increases. Right. There's some things we can do on our end to help ease that burden with testing or follow-up care. And there's a great way we can partner uh, with the glaucoma specialist if we have a good relationship with them. Yeah, the key word here is partnership. So yeah. as a glaucoma specialist, um, I want you to refer the patients when you're uncomfortable. Yeah, great. I want the 
useful information so my initial assessment can be comprehensive. I'd like to know the history, the pressure history, the untreated pressures. I'd like to have a series of visual fields. I'd prefer you not fax the color examinations because the fax is unreadable. (laughs) Send me color copies or email them. And then I asked you the question verbally, but let me know what you want. Let's talk about roles and responsibilities. Do you want a consultation? Do you want an intervention? Do you want transfer of care? And that all comes down to communication. So if I know how you like to communicate and I know what your expectations are on this particular referral, then we're partners and we're a team. Great approach. Brilliant. You both are amazing. Thank you so much. April, thank you. This is great. Thank you, April. I'm glad you put on this meeting. We're having a lot of fun here. Thank you. Thank you, April. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Opt In with Dr. April Jasper.